2SM. Australia's king of talkback radio, John Laws. 9am weekday. Genuine talk on the radio. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, I see the New South Wales government says a key plank of its COVID-19 economic response is being delayed because the city of Sydney is dragging its heels in approving critical social housing developments. Now, the council says it's working closely with the state government on these projects, but we all know... Come on, you're not fooling anybody, Clover, and you lot. We all know how councils love to drag their feet on approving DAs. Just get on with it. The assessment periods need to be quicker... And we need to get construction started immediately. Marcus, Paul in the morning. We're decades behind where we should be on social housing. We, we need not, you know, 900 new social housing dwellings. We need thousands and thousands of public housing dwellings built um, so that people can have somewhere to live. Want more news and genuine talk on the radio? Then stick with us. Marcus, Paul in the morning. Unscripted, genuine, sometimes silly. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, good morning and welcome to a Thursday. It is February the 25th. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company. How about you give me a call? 13 12 69. That's the telephone number, 13 12 69. If you want to send a text, you can do that. 0458 049 209. And, of course, the emails are there for you. MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. Well, I see that residents in, in Sydney South have had to be evacuated from at least 20 homes after a nasty accident overnight where a truck crashed into two cars, causing fuel to spill onto a major road. A fuel tanker and two vehicles crashed between Marsh Street and West Botany Street at Arncliffe. It happened at around 9.30 last night. Uh, no confirmed reports of injuries, which is the good news, but boy, oh boy, a heck of a mess. The fuel tanker, which was estimated to be carrying some 55,000 litres of fuel, leaked from its connection at the rear of the vehicle and onto the road. Would have been a little smelly around there, and hopefully no one was smoking. Firefighters and police were forced to doorknock the neighbourhood and evacuate around 40 people from 20 homes as the leak continued to spread down the street, of course creating an obvious fire risk. Foam blankets were used to soak up the spill and hazmat crews were on-site cleaning up the fuel until around 10 o'clock, but my understanding is that residents have not yet been allowed back into their homes. I mean, it's not known how much fuel leaked onto the road, but a freighter said it was a significant amount. West Botany Street, by the way, remains closed in both directions, with traffic still being diverted onto Wickham Street or turned around at Marsh Street. So that will, uh, unless they reopen by peak hour this morning... In Sydney's south, toward the airport, that will cause some major delays. All right, also making news, Premier Gladys Berejiklian was not happy after Queensland Deputy Premier Stephen Miles gave a a really pathetic excuse for his state not paying New South Wales what it owes for quarantine. Yep, obviously, uh, the border battles and the 
politicisation of COVID-19 continues between the states. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of sick of it. I really am. And why can't the Prime Minister just haul them all into line? Look, despite an agreement reached last year by the Board of the Nation's Treasurers that each state would foot the invoice for their own residents, Queensland yesterday said it would not welch, uh, said it would welch on the deal. It all comes as it's revealed the New South Wales government will today announce a multi-billion dollar improvement to the state's economic forecast, shaving some $2 billion off the projected deficit, thanks to the state's ability to avoid widespread lockdowns. Still, New South Wales is counting on a combined $86 million owed by the other states to cover hotel quarantine between March and September of last year, before the cost was borne by the individual. I mean, the Premier yesterday, Ms Berejiklian, said they need to do the right thing, Queenslanders, and pay up. But bizarrely, Queensland Health Minister Stephen Miles cited a beef or a blue with the federal government, not New South Wales, for his reason for withholding the money, saying he would not pay the bill until Scott Morrison approved a quarantine hub at Toowoomba. (laughs) See what I mean? Playing politics. Playing politics with COVID-19. It's getting ridiculous, isn't it? It's a lame excuse, according to the Premier of New South Wales, for not paying up what Queenslanders owe the citizens of New South Wales. I mean, Queensland's quarantine hub issue is with the federal government. While this is a direct debt they owe the people of New South Wales, and they need to do the decent thing and pay up. Now, Mr Miles, that's Queensland's Deputy Premier Stephen Miles, tabled the New South Wales invoice to Queensland Parliament yesterday. It advises that New South Wales quarantined 7,112 Queenslanders and 4,991 people with no address who have been split up, uh, who have been split up in costs across all states proportionally. There we go. Uh, But Mr Miles, and obviously the government in Queensland still have an issue with the Prime Minister, Mr Miles said yesterday Scott Morrison is like a school bully telling us we have to give our lunch money to New South Wales. You see what I mean? Playing petty politics. I don't know, maybe Queensland can't afford to pay up. Maybe that's the issue here. Anyway, you can dust off your dancing shoes and warm up those vocal cords, we're told. People will be able to hit the dance floor at weddings and sing indoors in a major easing of COVID-19 restrictions in New South Wales. From midnight tomorrow... Residents will be able to have 50 people in their home, up from 30, and limits on gym classes will lift to 50 people. And if there are zero locally acquired cases recorded over the next three weeks, bar patrons will be allowed to drink while standing. (laughs) It's nice of them. And attendance caps on weddings and funerals will, of course, also be lifted. So there we go. So from tomorrow... 50 people allowed to visit a home, 30 people allowed to dance at a wedding at any one time, gym classes of 50 people, choirs of 30 inside. Uh, Also, cinemas, this is good, cinemas will revert to full capacity. And I think, I checked the weather yesterday, I think we've got some rain on the way for Sydney over the weekend in particular. 
Might be a nice weekend to get out and go and see a movie. So there we go. Cinemas reverting to full capacity. Now, from March 17, that's if we continue with the donut days, that is zero local community transmissions, you'll be able to stand while you're drinking inside pubs. And capacity limits of 300 for weddings and funerals will be lifted. Now, the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, said restrictions were being eased with caution. I mean, we're in a pretty good spot in New South Wales, but it could be quite volatile. The Premier said, we have to be as vigilant as ever. We have to make sure we do not become complacent and that we stick to the COVID restrictions and rules to make sure that all of us stay protected. And she's right. All right, meanwhile, Auckland is now a hotspot and all New Zealand arrivals since February 20 must self-isolate following three new community cases there. That's according to New South Wales Health. Plans to ramp up tracing and testing for arriving passengers from the land of the long white cloud were announced by New South Wales Health yesterday, last night, following three new cases of community transmission in Auckland on Tuesday. A statement from New South Wales Health announced that Auckland would now be treated as a hotspot from today. So there we go. Uh, I mean, officials have been contacting all arrivals from there since February the 20th to check if they've been to any of the venues that the cases went to. So contact tracing is underway and a notice is now in effect specifying Auckland as a hotspot. It requires people arriving in New South Wales from New Zealand who have been in Auckland, including the airport, to enter hotel quarantine for 14 days. Alternatively, of course, they may choose to depart Australia. As a precaution, people who have arrived since Saturday, February the 20th, are also being asked if they are well and are being asked to get tested for COVID-19 and isolate until they get a negative result or for 14 days if they attended one of the venues. Now, Auckland's hotspot status came into effect from 12.01 this morning. New South Wales Health said the department will continue to monitor the situation. Marcus Paul in the morning, 13 12 69 is the telephone number. Let's hop on the open line. Craig, good morning, mate. Good morning, Marcus. Uh, I think it's about time we get fair income about our cocaine problem here in Australia and that law enforcement uh, agencies uh, get really heavy on it. I say it's a, it's a national disgrace. Well, they, I mean, they're doing some good work. Uh, I don't know whether... Uh, when you say we need to get fit income about it, I mean, I keep seeing busts in the news um, each and every week, but, I mean, are we ever going to crack down on it? I don't know. Well, as I said, uh, as I said, I'm, it destroys lives. And, uh, you know, as I said, uh, it's about time we got fit income about it, I say. Well, yeah, it we're, does. We're, 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 yeah. We're, we're a pretty weak country, a very, a very, very weak country. All right, mate. Well, look, you're right. It does destroy lives, but some self-responsibility needs to come in here, I mean, is cocaine addictive? I don't think it is, is it? Uh, and if you if you're snorting coke and you're getting involved in all that nonsense, well, it's hardly uh, my fault, Justin's fault. Surely some self responsibility comes in here, uh, and police are doing the best they can to crack down on the importation of cocaine. 
Uh, it's a big recreational drug and uh, it's used fairly widely, as I understand, particularly in circles of people who do quite well um, economically. But I don't know, are we ever going to uh, crack down on it? Self-responsibility needs to come into play, surely. 13 12 69, the telephone number, 21 minutes after 5. A peak medical group uh, warns the $25 a week raise to unemployment benefits won't be enough to lift people out of poverty. It says being poor can be just as big of a health risk as COVID-19. Doctors Reform Society President Tom Woodruff says, here in Australia we desperately need a fair health system. All right, well, I mean, the issues will go on and on because I can't see... Look, I noticed in the Senate, Rachel Seward pushed through a motion which basically is trying to stymie uh, the change or the new uh, allowance being announced yesterday by the... or yesterday and the day before by the federal government of this slight increase to the job seeker payment. So she's trying. Others are trying as well. Labor, as we know, will support the increase because at least it's an increase. But I don't know. It's not enough. It's just not enough. And we'll hear more about it, I'm sure, as the days go by. And plenty of people yesterday were having their say when we filled in for the law show. And some people, um, I think, a little ignorantly suggesting that, oh, well, you know, people just need to get off their backsides and get a job. Well, yes, there's a a fair bit of truth to that, particularly for younger people. But what about the 300-plus thousand Australians over the age of 40 to 45 and then into their 50s and 60s who basically try and try and try as they may to get a job, only to be told that, oh, well, you're going to be overlooked despite your experience because... Well, you're too old. Ageism. It's a major, major issue. And we need to support people, you know, over the ages of 40 plus, 45 plus, those people with responsibilities, children, mortgages, etc. And there's no reason why these people, if through COVID in particular, no fault of their own, have lost their, their jobs, they've been retrenched, whatever it is, these people should not be forced to live well below the poverty line. And that's the problem. The new start payment is well below the poverty line. Okay, 23 minutes after five. Marcus Paul in the morning, 13 12 69, the telephone number. Uh, Good morning to our listeners on 2TM Tamworth. What's going on up there? You've been battered by a wild storm. Hail. When I saw a couple of pictures, it looked like snow. I thought, what? That's how deep it was. Hail carpeted much of the area with torrential rain and gusty winds also hitting the region. Around 19 millimetres of rain fell, followed by a 10-minute hailstorm. If you're listening to us this morning up there, how did you go? Hopefully, how big was the hail? Was it damaging? I mean, all hail, of course, can be damaging. I mean, there's hail and then there's golf balls falling from the sky. (laughs) Anyway, uh, tell us how you went. Up there in Tamworth, 2TM listeners, 13 12 69, the telephone number. That's 13 12 69. Teachers at the Walgett's Community College High School have walked away from their job yesterday amid concerns of, uh, concerns rather, of understaffing. 
The New South Wales government is being urged to address the staffing issue across the state, but it's, it looks like it's reaching such plague proportions in regional New South Wales, we've got teachers walking off the job. So teachers at the Walgett Community College High School walked away from their job yesterday amid concerns of understaffing. The New South Wales government is being urged to address the staffing issue across the state, in particular in the regions. And New South Wales Teachers Federation Deputy President Henry Regenra says it's a statewide issue. Uh, Justin, we might try and get the New South Wales Teachers Federation on this morning and have a little chat to them about that. Meanwhile, there are concerns about oral injuries if sporting participants don't, uh, don't equip themselves with an appropriate mouth guard. Uh, look, with the football season about to start, it's a really important story, this one. We've got plenty of uh, youngsters around our country preparing to get into the AFL or NRL seasons and, and play, but it's very, very important you get the correct oral protection in place, obviously mouth guards we're talking about. Dental trauma from a sporting injury can lead to fractured, cracked or knocked out teeth. Dr Kathleen Matthews from the Australian Dental Association's New South Wales branch, well, she says it's best to consult with a professional. Well, that's true. Uh, look, a lot of people, and part of the problem, of course, is that dentists are so damn expensive, but a lot of people just get those, uh, you know, one-size-fits-all mouth guards that you can buy in sporting stores and then you, 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 what do you do? You put them in boiling water and you just mould them into your mouth. But are they, I mean, I suppose they're better than nothing. But there are concerns about oral injuries. And if sporting participants don't, don't, don't equip themselves with the appropriate mouth guard, it could lead to cracked and broken teeth, etc. Uh, but I'm a little, I'm a little sceptical when you hear the Australian Dental Association coming out with these kinds of comments. I mean, they want more people to go to the dentist. Well, Dr Kathleen Matthews, if you want more people to go to the dentist, then damn well make it cheaper and more affordable for everybody. New Sport and Weather next at 5.30. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, it's Thursday and it's February the 24th. Give me a call, let me know what's on your mind. 13 12 69. All the news in your views, as always. At 24 minutes away from 6. Tom's there. Hello, mate. How are you, Tom? Good morning, Marcus. How are you? All right, thank you, boss. What's on your mind, mate? Oh, that's good. Uh, Marcus, I heard on an interview the other day that apparently there's no HR department in Canberra in Parliament House, and which I found that absolutely unbelievable that they haven't got one. And I heard, and when Angus Carter was asked by the broadcaster, well, don't you think it would be a good idea if you put an HR department, got an HR department? And his response, not in words, was sort of words to the effect of, well, a lot of small businesses don't have HR departments, so why should we? <laughs> uh, yes, he's from probably the biggest business in the country, one of the biggest employers, the federal government, for goodness sake. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that would be a one step in the right direction, you know, if they put one in, because then the people uh, who have sort of problems like this 
come up, then at least it'd have somewhere to go to. Well said. Uh, look, there's a really good article that I've shared on our social media page. I mean, dob on us and see what happens when Peter Van Onslen revealed that the Prime Minister's office was deliberately backgrounding journalists to smear Brittany Higgins' now partner, my mate, my old producer in Canberra, David Chiraz. I thought, here we go again, dob on us and see what happens. Whenever this government is threatened with negative publicity, they respond with character assassination threats and vindictive retribution, it would appear. Bernard Collery, a barrister and former ACT Attorney General, is facing jail, as we know, for allegedly helping his client, Intelligence Officer Witness K, reveal information about Australia's bugging of Timor-Leste government officials to gain the upper hand during oil and gas negotiations in 2004. We know that ridiculously, ridiculously, this trial continues to be conducted in secret. It doesn't stop there, of course, when Adelaide-based public servant Richard Boyle revealed disturbing debt collection practices by the Australian Taxation Office. He was hit with charges which could see him spend the rest of his life in jail. Look, a few weeks before the 2016 election, the Australian Federal Police raided raided a home affairs employee's home and the Canberra office of the department over leaks concerning Peter Dutton's ministerial intervention in the case of two foreign au pairs. When it was revealed that Dutton's chief of staff, Craig McLaughlin, was alerted to the fact the raids were going to take place the day before the Deputy Commissioner, Neil Gorn, it led to a complaint by the targeted public servant that there were reasonable grounds to suspect the AFP is neither operationally independent or without political bias. When the Australian Human Rights Commission produced a report about the abuse of children in immigration detention and their declining physical and mental health, the government attacked Gillian Triggs mercilessly. And it got very personal, as we know. I mean, Scott Morrison, also dismissed, saved the children's staff, incorrectly claiming they had been coaching asylum seekers to self-harm. Look, despite commissioning a report which verified... What the AHRC had said and exonerated the Save the Children staff, who consequently received a large settlement, no apology at all was forthcoming from Morrison and Trigg's contract was not renewed. Remember the ABC's revelation of allegations of potential war crimes by Australian Special Forces in Afghanistan? Well, that led to raids on the national broadcaster and the AFP referring journalist Dan Oakes for prosecution. Charges that the CDPP subsequently decided not to pursue. When journalist Emma Alberici wrote an article analysing the government's proposed company tax cuts and questioning whether they would deliver the claimed outcomes of greater business investment and higher wages, the politicians and the Murdoch media went into such a frenzy that the ABC removed the article. After Alberici engaged lawyers... A slightly changed version of the article was reposted. However, with the axing of late line, Miss Alberici is now largely unemployed and has disappeared from our screens. There's been no auntie, the broadcaster, ABC, has been in the firing line ever since the coalition came to power. Whether it be intelligence officers paying people smugglers, the shocking mismanagement of water resources, or, you know... The awful behaviour, allegedly, of men in Parliament. The government does not want their dirty linen aired in public. 
and they made that very clear with constant complaints, attempts at editorial influence and most destructive of all, savage funding cuts. The same has happened to the Australian National Auditor's Office with information withheld and reports gagged under spurious grounds like commercial incompetence and national security, followed by significant funding cuts. None of what has been reported has been disputed. It's all been proven to be factual. Nevertheless, the message is clear. To quote Peter Dutton, if you dob, you are dead to me. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. While the other mob's playing thousands of ads in between reading scripts, we're bringing you all the news and views. Good morning, everybody. Marcus Paul, weekdays from 5am on 2SM. All right, the open line, 13 12 69 at 16 to 6. Hello, Jean, how are you? Good, thank you, Marcus. Um, what I wanted to crucially say was the government had made an industry out of um, employing Aboriginal people with that qualification. I know this because... I went through Aboriginal Ranger training with New South Wales National Parks, and that was many years ago. And I found that um, because I stood up for myself um, in being asking the question, why am I going through Aboriginal Ranger training? And at the end of the day, I become qualified, and then... They say, well, now you're a trained ranger. Yeah. And I said, what happened to the Aboriginal part of being trained as a ranger? And um, for that, the government sacked me. All right, so let's hang on. Yeah, just let me go back to. uh, So, you are you Aboriginal? Um, No, that is a government term. I'm not Aboriginal. And that's the other thing. I'm always drawn by um, my... I am Tobrova, and that is the name of my original family. Right. And that's the name that I go by in terms of respecting who my people are. And it's been taken out of all proportion with this Aboriginal Indigenous which is just the industry that the government has tagged every nation within Australia to accommodate their um, control over the people, and I mean Australian as well, of um, the Aboriginal and Indigenous and Australian people because of the land. And that is what I stand for. And I am not discriminating here about anything except the fact that when I heard you talk about how the government has done everything, then I may as well throw what I have been living with for years, Mm. the fact that the government has been very, very much discriminating against me, even to the fact of not being able to get employment in a land council that has been mismanaged and run into the ground and made us poor 
as the original owners of this land. All right. Uh, I think I'm following uh, most of that. Thank you. So uh, my caller um, undertook uh, a ranger's course uh, that was set aside um, for Aboriginal rangers, although she's not Aboriginal herself, she says, and she um, sounds like she rocked the boat, to be honest. It sounded a little like she rocked the boat, and um, uh, consequently her employment was terminated. She wants to work with the land council and I don't know. Um, I guess until we hear the other side of the story, it's hard to make a judgment call on that, but I'm sorry that's happened to you. Uh, Brittany Higgins' account of sexual assault in Parliament House and the one-year anniversary of the murder of Hannah Clark have brought the Me Too movement back into the spotlight this week. So this morning I thought we'd speak to author David Lesser. David wrote, Women... Men and the Whole Damn Thing, which explores patriarchy and misogyny critically from the male perspective. It has gained international attention and was released in the US last month. Now, the book has been praised by both female advocates and a number of men's groups for addressing Australia's gender crisis head-on, particularly as we navigate the post-Me Too environment. Some key Australian stats, well, on average... One woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. One in three Australian women has experienced physical violence since the age of 15. One in five Australian women has experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. I mean, that's, that's 20%. 20% of Australian women have experienced some form of sexual violence since they were 15. I mean, aren't these statistics something we all should be ashamed of? One in four Australian women has experienced emotional abuse by a current or former partner. And unfortunately, as we know, nine Australians on average die every day by suicide. And 75% of those are male. It sounds like a, a really interesting story. So we'll speak to author David Lesser about it. Uh, his book... Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing, uh, a bestseller and is gaining, uh, well, some acclaim overseas, including in the United States of America. Alrighty, give me a call, 13 12 69, the telephone number. Labor is calling on the Berejiklian government to urgently reform the Community Road Safety Fund so that New South Wales motorists and the general public are confident about where the government is spending the record amounts of money it's raising from speed, red light and mobile phone cameras. Uh, now, we're told the Berejiklian government is on track to raise $350 million from camera fines in the year 2020 to 21, while the last public account of the fund in 2018-19 allocated $304 million to road safety programs. Mobile phone cameras have become a massive source of revenue, with more than $63 million raised in the program's first 11 months of operation. But despite this bumper harvest of government revenue, funding for some of the most important programs supported by this fund, the Community Road Safety Fund, have been reduced. Funding to reduce black spots has fallen from $28.8 million to $13.8 million. While historically... There has been a focus on high visibility policing out of the fund 
This has also been allocated to funding police overtime and wages. The previous focus on public education and advertising campaigns has tended to be replaced with sports sponsorships. All right, we're going to speak to the Shadow Minister for Roads, John Graham, on this. Um, And he says... To our program, we support evidence-based road safety programs. We have questions about the fund. Black spot funding in particular has been cut. And money has been diverted from high visibility campaigns to rostered days off and stadium sponsorship. Want more news and genuine talk on the radio? Then stick with us. Marcus Paul in the morning. Already eight minutes to six. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind on this Thursday. It is February the 24th. Marcus Paul in the morning. G'day there. What's your name? Marcus Paul in the morning. All right. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind. 13, 12, 69. Uh, thank you for those calls. My apologies. It's early. I did a double yesterday and uh, I'm a little tired, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to be here. Of course I want to be here. But I made a mistake. Today is the 25th day of February, not the 24th. Sorry, it happens. 13 12 69, the telephone number. Today is the 25th day of February. Uh, the problem is I was looking at a, an article that I printed out for the show and it still had the 24th, so I've gone to the top. Ah, oh, 24th. Silly me. 13 12 69, the telephone number to have you say. Emails, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. Good morning to you, Matt. G'day, Marcus. I heard you mention another stupid medical study that stated being poor is as dangerous as COVID-19. What a ridiculous statement. Well, a peak medical group warns the $25 a week raise to the unemployment benefits won't be enough to lift people out of poverty. And poverty, look, can lead to all sorts of serious health injuries. In 2021, 2SM has Sydney talking. Wake up, wake up. I want it. Marcus Paul in the morning. Just gets me going. Let's get to the good bed. Okay, good morning and welcome back to the program. 13 12 69 is my telephone number. Marcus Paul in the morning, if you would like to have you say, you can send me an email, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. Uh, look, I can exclusively reveal on the program this morning that Brittany Higgins and her partner have now relocated to Brisbane just a day after speaking with ACT police regarding her alleged rape in a federal senator's office in Parliament House. Brittany Higgins and her former journalist partner David Shiraz have relocated to the Sunshine State. Uh, Shiraz, who quit his government's lobbying job last week because of alleged backgrounding on him by LNP insiders, took to social media overnight to announce the move. Uh, David is a a mate of mine. He's an ex producer at the radio program that I had in Canberra, 2 C. He says he's now looking for new opportunities, so personally, I wish the couple some peace. Happiness and obvious success. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind this morning. Helen Dalton, uh, our hashtag water warrior at nine after six, has taken to social media. What are we doing to our southern Riverina towns? Well, whatever it is, it's infinitely worse than what the Soviet Union did to the Aral Sea region. 
Whose idea was it to treat water a life source like Bitcoin? Friendly Geordie's pulled no punches in his latest series of videos on water corruption, which draws on the work of Marianne Slattery. It's really good work. Here's a little of what Jordan did last week. And that storages for this illegally harvested water have increased 140% since 1994. New South Wales Minister Melinda Pavey desperately attempted to legalise this crap, but it got voted down, as usual, thanks to Helen Dalton, but also someone we haven't given enough of a shout-out to, independent King Justin Field. And in retaliation, the same coalition that faked into nation at Trump not respecting democracy, attempted to put the motion through when Parliament couldn't disallow it. What I'm getting at is our water mismanagement isn't creating the same cool post-apocalyptic landscape that it is in, say, Uzbekistan. It's much worse. New South Wales is littered with towns along the once prosperous southern riverina and deep west that have it worse than those ex-fishing towns in Central Asia. Australia is one of the most developed nations on Earth. It is insanely wealthy, and we are making worse mistakes than the Soviet Union, even with the benefit of hindsight. And guess what else? The RLC wasn't primarily the population's drinking water. It was too salty for that. Murray-Darling Basin is. Secondly, despite the huge, gigantic public policy failure that was the murder of the RLC, it was committed for an economically cogent region. It was expanding irrigation to increase cotton exports for ostensibly the good of everyone. And it worked. There is a case to be made that Uzbekistan prospered somewhat because of it. On top of that, at least the Soviet Union was listening to scientists. They predicted and prepared, albeit badly, for the death of fishing in the region. But the murder of the Murray-Darling, and in turn all the small basin towns around it, is being committed in the name of economical literacy. The closest rational explanation as to why this mass murder is being committed would be to benefit foreign irrigators that now see our water resource, life source, as another asset like f***ing Bitcoin to speculate on. Oh, and by the way, just to lighten the mood, these folks are capital gains tax exempt from the profit they make speculating on our water. No wonder you see people like Helen Dalton unseating National Party dynasties. It's because she understands the corruption needs to end. Anyway, I just thought I'd give you an introduction into this very bright and hopeful topic. I'll be having a big doco on this coming out soon, and eventually it should break some very big and scary stories. But just before that, this video is just to whet your appetite. Make sure that you like this video, because what's not to like? And subscribe to see how many times I can end with a shit water joke. Wake up Marcus Paul has Sydney talking. All the news and the views. Marcus Paul, weekdays from 5am on 2SM. Climby Fisher and love changes everything. Marcus Paul in the morning, 13 12 69. My telephone number if you would like to have you say this morning. The International Olympic Committee... Well, their future host summer commission has designated Brisbane as the preferred candidate city to host the 2032 Summer Olympic Games. A decision endorsed unanimously by the IOC's executive board. So it would appear that the 2032 Olympic Games are headed to Queensland Sunshine State. The news was delivered by IOC President Thomas Bach during a press conference in Switzerland. The IOC will now move discussions to a targeted dialogue followed by final negotiations with the city then elect at a future IOC session, likely within the next year. Now, should the exclusive negotiations prove successful, then Brisbane 
would become the third Australian city to host the Summer Games after Melbourne in 1956, of course, and Sydney in 2000. Other cities that had shown interest in the 2032 Games included Doha, Budapest, Istanbul, Jakarta, New Delhi and St Petersburg. Uh, It's been criticised. Pauline Hanson's been one of them, amongst others, who say that, quite simply, Brisbane and Queensland taxpayers can't afford it. What do you make of it? 13, 12, 69. We know it's been pushed very heavily by the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, but it looks like the IOC will give Brisbane the nod. Again, their future host summer commission has designated Brisbane as the preferred candidate city to host the 2032 Summer Olympic Games. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind this morning. 13, 12, 69. Very soon we're going to catch up with the opposition's uh, roads minister or minister for roads, John Graham in New South Wales. Labor's calling on the Berejiklian government to urgently reform the Community Road Safety Fund so that New South Wales motorists and the general public are confident about where the government is spending the record, and I tell you what, they are record amounts of revenue. It's raising from speed, red light and mobile phone cameras. The government is on track to raise some $350 million from camera fines in 2020 and 2021. While the last public account of the fund in 2018-19 allocated $304 million to road safety programs, we know that mobile phone cameras have become a massive source of revenue into the Community Road Safety Fund, with more than $63 million raised in the program's first 11 months of operation. But despite this bumper harvest of government revenue... Funding for some of the most important programs supported by this Community Road Safety Fund has been, well, reduced. Where's the money gone? Funding to reduce black spots has fallen from $28.8 million to only $13.8 million. So in other words, the funding of black spots using this fund has been halved. While historically there's been a focus on high visibility policing out of the fund, This has also been allocated to funding police overtime and wages. What happened to high visibility police? The previous focus on public education and advertising campaigns has tended to be replaced with, of all things, sports sponsorships. Well, hang on. Unbelievable. Anyway, we'll talk to John Graham about it. He'll be on after 6.30 this morning. Um, all right then, thirteen, twelve, sixty-nine. Speaking of police, uh, we've got a few notes here that have come through to the studio from New South Wales Police. Sorry, Hill, Sorry Hills detectives have charged four people, including an older couple, following an investigation into the supply of heroin in Sydney's inner east. In November 2020, detectives from Surrey Hills Police Area Command established strike force. Waldergrave to investigate the supply of heroin across the inner suburbs. Following their inquiries, detectives arrested a 44-year-old man during a vehicle stop on Anzac Parade. That happened just after 6.30 yesterday morning. 
The 44-year-old Hillview man was taken to Maroubra Police Station and then charged with taking part in supplying a prohibited drug greater than commercial quantity. He was refused bail and appeared at Waverley Local Court yesterday where he was again refused bail to appear at Central Local Court on Tuesday, April 20. Short time later... Strike force detectives, with the help of the Central Metro Region's Odin and the Dog Unit, executed a search warrant at a unit in Waterloo. During this search, they seized heroin, a mobile phone, a number of SIM cards, prescription medications and a number of laser pointers. A 41-year-old man was arrested there and also taken to Surrey Hills Police Station and slapped with a heap of charges. He again was refused bail and will front central local court today. And as if that wasn't great enough work by detectives, just after 8 o'clock they arrested a 72-year-old man and a 62-year-old woman at a Surrey Hills home and took them to the local police station. And they were also charged with supplying a prohibited drug and refused bail to appear in central local court today, Thursday, February 25. So that is great work by New South Wales Police. Yeah, 23 minutes after six. You there, Mark? How are you, mate? All right, thank you, Mark. What's on this, your mind? This thing that I've noticed now with all the, the normal squad, you've got Kelly, Canavan, Latham, Joyce. Have you noticed they all say now coal firepower is cheaper? They say that, but the, the real reason we have got the most expensive power in the world is because they've privatised it all. Absolutely. And then they say about mm. the... the Blackout in South Australia. If you look at the photos, those great big steel towers that carry 330,000 volts mm. blew over. There was about 10 of them blown over from the extreme weather conditions. You can't tell me that power is going to go through there if they're all laying on the ground. And they had a backup <laughs> system, gas to fire it, but they wouldn't answer their phone to turn turn the to divert the power. Mm. If you if you read the report on that, when the when the South Australian government was ringing up the gas fire power station to divert their power because they were had total blackout. Yeah. They would not answer their phone. And the thing is, all those people that keep saying coal fire power is cheaper, do they think they're gonna build those new coal power stations for nothing? No. Banks won't even finance them. They don't want anything to do with them. Well uh, you know the answer to all of this, uh, I don't know whether you agree with me or not, nuclear. Yeah, well, then again, I was looking at that thing on Japan the other day. Yeah. All those great big tanks of water, they've got nowhere to store it now. And they're thinking about releasing all that radioactive water into the oceans. Well, they shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> well, they are, because the difference they've got nowhere, nowhere yeah. left to store it. But the difference is, forgetting Japan for a moment, uh, we have the uranium, we send it overseas to be enriched for power. Why can't we do it here in Australia? We've got uh, a massive continent, plenty of area, plenty of space. Yeah, but, but you need the water, don't forget. You need the water no, you don't. Well, see, that's the thing, you don't, because the new, uh, the new style of nuclear reactors don't need to be built on coastlines. Yeah, we'll look into that and see if we can bring up some information on it. But as for Kelly and all those nutcases, <laughs> Latham included, I'll give them the time of day, those blokes. They're a bunch of wackos. All right, well, it's, in, okay. it's still important yeah. to hear from wackos, as you put it. Uh, I wouldn't call... Well, Craig Kelly, absolutely. Uh, Mark Latham, as you know, he's on the program every Friday, and it's important to hear from Mark because in a number of instances, he uh, and Pauline Hanson... 
Malcolm Roberts. I mean, the reason we get them on the program is to hear their points of view because quite often, you know, they, they control the balance of power and governments or even opposition parties rely heavily on their support and their vote. While the other mob's playing thousands of ads in between reading scripts, we're bringing you all the news and views. Good morning, everybody. Marcus Paul, weekdays from 5am on 2SM. All right, well, the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian is disappointed that Queensland will not pay up the $30 million quarantine bill they owe New South Wales taxpayers. The nation's treasurers last year agreed each state would pay for their own residence, but Queensland is refusing to stick to the deal. The government will today announce a multi-billion dollar improvement to the state's economic forecast, shaving $2 billion off the projected deficit, thanks to the state's ability to avoid widespread lockdowns. But still, New South Wales is counting on a combined $86 million owed by other states to cover hotel quarantine between March and September of last year. Get up. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back to the program 131269, my telephone number and emails. MP in the morning at 2SM, supernetwork.com. The Shadow Minister for Roads in New South Wales, John Graham, will join us in around about five minutes' time. Why is the state government not spending enough money on black spots on our roads? Considering there's been a record haul of revenue into state government coffers from, well, red light cameras, speed cameras and the likes. We'll find out soon. Okay, well, the Media Bargaining Code has passed the Senate. So what happens next? Uh, using news content on their platforms has always been something Google and Facebook have done. As we know, without paying, that's been the problem, according to many, particularly News Corp. So when the Australian government tried to force the tech giants to cough up some cash for publishers, there was always going to be fireworks. That culminated, as we know, in Facebook's decision last week to block access to news to Australians. It may have walked back on that, but the showdown continues today. A new phase of the government's plan starts. So what's happened? Well, the highly contentious media bargaining bill, formerly titled Treasury Laws Amendment, News, Media and Digital Platforms Mandatory Bargaining Code, passed the Senate. Uh, Because it's been amended, it will return to the House of Representatives, but it's likely to pass there imminently as early as later this week. It means a radical piece of media reform, the bargaining code, will come into effect. So what happens after that? Well, after it passes both houses, news businesses that want to be paid for content that appears on search engines or social media can sign up, provided they meet some conditions, including earning... $150,000 per year in revenue. At the same time, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg will consider the question of designating digital platforms like Google and Facebook and the services they offer, like search or newsfeed. This means he will consider whether they hold a significant power imbalance over publishers. Now, if the Treasurer does decide to designate one, he needs to provide it with 30 days' notice. After that ends, the platform will be designated 
meaning it must start negotiating with news businesses about how much to pay them for content through mediation, or if that fails, arbitration. So that leaves Facebook and Google powerless to an arbitrate telling them how much they should pay, which is a risky proposition. Look, some people believe that the deals have already been done. Well, as we know, last week Google was part of several reported deals with Australian media companies worth tens of millions of dollars. At that time, the Treasurer said none of these deals would be happening if we didn't have the legislation before the Parliament. That is, according to the Treasurer, the threat of the law prompted Google to sign those deals. As we know, not long after, Facebook indicated it wasn't happy with the way the law was drafted by blocking news content for Australians. It has come around this week reversing its decision to pull news from the platform. What caused this about-face? Well, after discussions with Facebook, including between the Australian Treasurer and founder Mark Zuckerberg himself, the government amended the law. The announcement coincided with an about-face from Facebook, which committed to reinstating news for Australian users. There was even a reported deal between Facebook and Seven West Media, an indication the social media giant may be committed to the new environment. Even though Facebook complained last week about a broad definition of news in the law, it appears the changes focus on the process for the Treasurer designating a service. They require him to consider whether the platform has made a significant contribution to the Australian news industry. Well, you can bet your bottom dollar he'll be looking after his mates at News Corp. Is there anything wrong with these changes? Well, Belinda Barnett, senior lecturer in media at Swinburne University, says the changes mean there's not much to encourage the tech giants to make good offers. They will just be making offers to please the treasurer, she says. She hoped platforms would be designated and face the full obligations under the law, including a requirement for platforms to give access to engagement data and notice of algorithm changes. But she believes the changes suggest the government may have only wanted the legislation to force parties to the table. It almost feels like the government is using the prospect of designating them as leverage or as a big stick. That is, if they don't behave as though they were designated, they will be designed. Uh, Anyway, what about small publishers? I guess like our show, we're, I guess you would say, a small publisher. I mean, at the moment, our Facebook page is reaching on average over a million people every month. I don't think we'll get a look in. We certainly will not receive any payment, I doubt. But News Corp, Nine and Seven West Media obviously will. They are much larger publishers. But more niche publishers with agreements such as Junkie and Private Media are larger than many regional outlets. But the government doesn't believe smaller media businesses will be left behind. Well, (laughs) we'll wait and see, Josh. We will wait and see. Communications Minister Paul Fletcher said yesterday, we do expect there to be arrangements with small and regional publishers as well as the larger ones, albeit through the more efficient mode of engagement through a default offer. I mean, could Facebook block news again? Well, some believe it's possible, but the next month will be very, very important. Breaking all of that jargon down, essentially, uh, the Australian government is looking after Rupert Murdoch and their mates within the larger media organisations. Should the Treasurer have bothered himself with all of this? Well, some say perhaps not. I'm not quite sure. Look, I do believe that 
money should be provided by tech giants like Facebook uh, if they're going to share and use content, uh, news content in particular. But I just hope that that money, say, for instance, News Corp or Nine or Seven, whoever it is, the money that they garner from these tech giants, I hope it's reinvested into the media industry. In other words, if you're going to get more money from Facebook and Google, well, then hire more journalists. Reopen newsrooms in regional New South Wales and regional Queensland. Recycle that money back into the industry. Sadly, I can't see it happening, though. What I think will happen is, obviously, the money will go into News Corp and bump up executive bonuses and salaries and all the rest of it. I'd be very surprised if this new money that comes from the tech giants will lead to one extra journalist being employed. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Just gets me going. Let's skip to the good bit. All right, welcome back to the program. 131269. Uh, Tinky has been in touch with us on our Facebook page. Uh, Marcus, the public needs to know the name of the alleged rapist involved in the Canberra incident. I reported earlier um, that Brittany Higgins. Well, she's made her formal statement to ACT Police. That happened yesterday. Uh, But her and her partner, David, have now relocated to Brisbane just a day after speaking with ACT Police regarding her alleged rape in a federal senator's office in Parliament House. uh, Brittany Higgins and her former journalist partner, David Shiraz, have relocated to the Sunshine State. Uh, Mr Shiraz, who quit his government lobbying job last week because of alleged backgrounding on him by the LNP, took to social media overnight to announce this move. He says he's now looking for new opportunities and, of course, on a personal note, I wish them both peace, happiness and success. Um, But in relation to Tinky's comment on the post that the public needs to know the name of the alleged rapist, well, that might be the case should police decide to go ahead with charges. I mean, that's unless the man's name is suppressed. More importantly... It must now be allowed to run its course through the legal process. The government's response to this issue, though, is separate and should continue to be scrutinised. There was no scrutiny yesterday because the minister involved has, well, found herself in Canberra Hospital due to, a, a well, a, an ongoing issue with... Uh, or ongoing cardiac issue. There's no doubt Linda Reynolds has been under immense pressure over the last couple of weeks since this story broke. And so she should be. So she should be. Uh, And she needs to answer questions. More questions need to be answered as to who knew what and when. And as more and more detail comes out each and every day, well, I have to say uh, that Miss Reynolds, once she's well enough, will have to face the music on this. Yesterday, not only did Miss Reynolds not attend a press club speech in Canberra, where she was expected to face a half-hour grilling from journalists, but Peter Dutton, Peter Dutton, of course, also revealed that his office 
apparently knew before the Prime Minister in relation to the allegations. I mean, so does Peter Dutton, who's pretty close to, obviously, the Prime Minister, does he not go to him and tap you on the shoulder and say, mate, this is what I've heard, come on. Are we meant to believe this rot? The Prime Minister, dead set, is trying to distract and get away from what really is the truth. In other words, I think he's lying. All righty, 13, 12, 69. Hello, good morning. Email Marcus and follow the show on social media by going to 2sm.com.au. Breakfast. Look, everywhere you go, around Sydney in particular, there's some kind of camera looking for you to do the wrong thing. Whether it's a speed camera, whether it's one of those hidden cameras catching people on their mobile phones, and yes, you shouldn't speed, and put your mobile phone away when you hop in your car. I get all of that, and um, we've got cameras everywhere that are leading to record amounts of fines and revenue going into the so-called Community Road Safety Fund. Now, that's fine, so long as that money is then recycled back into road safety. Well, is it? The Berejiklian government is on track to raise $350 million from camera fines in the upcoming financial year, while the last public account of the fund, back in 2018-19, allocated $304 million to road safety programs. Mobile phone cameras, in particular, have become a major source of revenue into the Community Road Safety Fund, with more than $63 million raised in the program's first 11 months of operation. So you'd think with this bumper harvest of government revenue, funding into some of the most important programs supported by the Community Road Safety Program would be bumped up. But instead, I'm led to believe it's in fact been reduced. What's happened to the money and why is this happening? John Graham, of course, is the State Opposition Minister for Roads. He joins us on the program. Morning, John. Good morning, Marcus. Funding to reduce black spots has fallen. Well, in fact, it's halved. It used to be $28.8 million. It's fallen to $13.8 million, and that's despite extra revenue coming in from these new cameras. We've got a number of concerns about where the money's going, some legitimate questions, but the one that stood out to me, the one that really sparked my alarm, was the halving of black spot funding. This is a popular program. I think people know how important it is. Yes. Well... Revenue is up nine times uh, this month compared to last month for uh, mobile speed camera fines. Revenues through the roof, black spot funding has halved. That is inexplicable. Well, as we say, it used to be $28.8 million. It's gone down to $13.8 million, so it's more than halved. Yeah, no, exactly right. Uh, and that, uh, it should be uh, increasing just as the fines are. Um, we've seen a record amount of revenue. This will be the first year where the amount of camera revenue overtakes the spending on road safety out of the fund. Mm. Uh, that's why we'd like to see a lot more oversight over exactly how that money's spent. The public should know, uh, and that's important to keep the public support for the fact that there are 
there is speed camera enforcement, there is mobile phone camera enforcement around New South Wales. Previously, the government has focused on public education and advertising campaigns to keep us all safe on our roads. But I read here that that is being replaced with what? Sports sponsorships. What do you mean by that? The amount of money for what's been referred to over the years as um, public um, campaigns, uh, public awareness, has stayed steady. But increasingly, so that would have been uh, some of the big ad campaigns, TV, radio, maybe print or outdoor, uh, advertising, encouraging people to slow down, encouraging them to drive safely. Increasingly, we've seen that money go across to sports or stadium sponsorships. Now, some of these sports teams are um, helping get the message out, but we're concerned about the shift in the fund over the years. There's now... Uh, many more sports sponsorships uh, than there are road safety awareness campaigns. And we'll be asking about those programs and estimates today. Well, look, I, I can understand that, you know, they need to try and cut through and perhaps, you know, research has shown that by uh, engaging with sporting celebrities and the like that, uh, you know, they, you know, it can cut through in some instances, but it shouldn't replace... Because not everybody, even though we, we're a sports-loving uh, state, it shouldn't replace general advertising, which would probably have a much greater reach. And again, revenue's up dramatically here. Yep. This fund has not increased. That means less advertising, less public awareness through the traditional channels that have been used to get the word out. Now, is that evidence-based? Well, we don't know because there's almost no scrutiny of this fund. Um, we'd like to see more independent oversight. We'd like to see the public know where this money's been spent. John, um, I see here as well that some of the money has been diverted into paying things like uh, police overtime, etc. Why would that be the case? Yeah, there's again, from the start of the fund, there's always been money for high visibility police enforcement, yeah. and that's appropriate. That's Again, I think the public is supportive of that. Mm. Uh, what's indicated in the documents, though, is that Uh, this money is sliding towards being spent on uh, police overtime, on covering rostered days off. I don't think the public expects when this fine revenue uh, goes into the fund, that's necessarily where it's heading. So, again, important questions uh, about how the money's being spent. The public can't answer those with the information that's out there. We'll do our best today to press the government through the parliamentary process, but this should just all be out in public. Mm. It should be transparent, and that's crucial so that the public does support these camera programs. All right, good to have you on the program. Good luck today in estimates, and we'll catch up soon, John. Thank you. Thank you. All right, there he is, Shadow Roads Minister John Graham on the program. Marcus Paul in the morning, and he's right. Funding to reduce black spots has fallen from 28 $8 million to $13.8 million. So in other words, despite record revenue from speed cameras, traffic uh, cameras, you know, the cameras that are hidden now that catch you on your mobile phone, and uh, I haven't got an issue with that. If you're doing the wrong thing, road safety is vitally important. I don't have an issue with the record amount of fines. I have an issue with the money not being spent or reinvested into community road safety. Anyway, uh, we'll find out more, I guess, as uh, the government uh, faces some criticism and some questions on that during estimates. 13 12 69, the telephone number. Marcus Paul in the morning.
Okay, uh, the Premier Gladys Berejiklian. Well, she's calling on Queensland to pay up. What do you make of that? Thirteen, twelve, sixty-nine. Apparently, uh, we are owed um, some eighty-six million dollars. A lot of it from Queensland because we've taken on the lion's share of quarantine. We've got details up on our Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Less ads means more of your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, good morning and welcome back to the program. 131269 is my telephone number if you would like to have your say on the 25th day of February. 2smsupernetwork.com. You can follow us online there. Just click on our show page where you can also send us an email. Well, just days into the vaccine rollout, federal government-run inoculations in aged care homes are apparently already behind schedule. More than 240 homes around the country are expected to get vaccines this week, but Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt has revealed just 26 were visited in the first two days, and Healthcare Australia confirmed it would not be able to meet its week one deadline in New South Wales and Queensland. Multiple operators due to get vaccines this week say they had not received information about when this would occur. Why not? Uh, Look, I understand it's a massive undertaking, but surely we've had plenty of time to prepare for this. Healthcare Australia was also the employer of a doctor who failed to complete mandatory training and made a real boo-boo. He administered between two and four times the required dose of the Pfizer vaccine to an 88-year-old man and a 94-year-old woman at an aged care provider in Brisbane. How on earth does something like this happen? The pair were taken to hospital as a precaution, and the doctor was stood down and referred to the regulator. The Department of Health is now checking all contracted workers have completed training and said Healthcare Australia may lose its contract if further issues arise. Well, they've got to get it right, haven't they? They absolutely have to get it right. More than 3,200 people in New South Wales received their first dose by the end of Tuesday, although this number doesn't include the aged care vaccinations done by the federal government. Meanwhile, I see the boss of Sydney Airport has called for international travel to resume once half of the country's population has been immunised. Well, I don't know. Is that, is that too early? And what about, I guess, returning people to Australia, those flying into our country? Should they require inoculation using a COVID-19 vaccine? I'm not quite sure. But there will be significant easing of restrictions across New South Wales from tomorrow after the state celebrated 38 days with no local cases. Up to 30 people will now be allowed to dance at weddings and people can hold gatherings of up to 50 at their homes. Gym classes can be attended by up to 50 people, subject to the four-square-metre rule, while cinemas can once again operate at 100% capacity. That's good news. If there are no local cases in the next three weeks, drinking while standing up at indoor venues will be allowed. It's great. (laughs) Uh, That will happen from early, well, mid-March, the 17th, and that'll be just in time for things like St. Patrick's Day, but probably too late for Mardi Gras, which is set to happen on March the 6th. 
Uh, but there are still some political issues and the politicisation, if you like, of COVID-19 and the infighting between different states continues. As the Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, said we're moving toward a new COVID normal. She's still warning us not to let our guards down. The Premier has also got into a brand new blue with Queensland. She's criticised the government over their refusal to pay some $30 million that it owes New South Wales for hotel quarantine. And the Deputy Premier, Stephen Miles, has bit back. He's basically turned around and, say, and said that Queensland will simply not pay up until Prime Minister Scott Morrison approves a pop-up quarantine hub near Toowoomba, which Miss Berejiklian said was a, a pretty poor excuse, and I agree with her. I agree with her. Uh, it shouldn't be incumbent upon a federal decision. So, for instance, I mean, depending on what the Prime Minister decides in relation to this so-called quarantine hub near Toowoomba, that has no bearing, I would say, on whether or not New South Wales should get the money it's owed. Anyway, that's just a few of the headlines that are buzzing around this morning. Uh, I see also, unfortunately, in New South Wales, but Sydney in particular, we are looking at a cocaine surge, a record one in 24 Australians reported using coke in 2019, and wastewater data shows Sydney is the epicentre of the growing habit. Of 22,272 people aged 14 and over surveyed by the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, 4.2% said they took cocaine at least once in 2019, and that's up from 2.5% back in 2016. Nationally, more than 98% of cocaine users were aged between 20 and 49, and men were more likely to say they used it than women. In New South Wales in particular... Cocaine users jumped from 3.4% of those surveyed in 2016 to 5% in 2019. Boy, oh boy, don't do it. I mentioned earlier this morning, and I did make a slight blue in my comment to an earlier caller just after 5 o'clock about the addictiveness of cocaine. I mean, it's, it is highly addictive. But again, self-responsibility needs to come into play here. Absolutely it does. Alrighty, 13 12 69, my telephone number. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind this morning. Marcus Paul has Sydney talking. All the news and the views. Marcus Paul, weekdays from 5am on 2SN. All right. Well, just a, something else I'll mention before we move on at 12 after 7. The International Olympic Committee has given its best indication yet that, well, Brisbane is the preferred host city for the 2032 Olympic Games. They basically turned around and said that Brisbane is the preferred candidate city to host the 2032 Summer Olympic Games, a decision endorsed unanimously by the IOC's executive board. I mean, if it is announced, of course then Brisbane will become the third Australian city to host the Summer Games after Melbourne back in 1956, of course, and the highly successful Sydney Olympic Games in the year 2000. Other cities that had shown interest in the 2032 Games included Doha, Budapest, Istanbul, Jakarta, New Delhi and St. Petersburg. So if you're a Queenslander listening to us this morning online, uh, maybe you're still catching us up there on the Sunshine Coast, 
give us a call. Um, I mean, a lot. Of, there's been a lot of criticism uh, as to whether or not, uh, you know, they can afford it. Can they afford it in Queensland? I mean, the Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk obviously believes that they can. Anyway, thirteen, twelve, sixty-nine to have you say. All right, just a uh, just a, a warning before we move on with this next story. It's just a content warning. If we have kids in the car and younger people listening, mums and dads, just um, explain to the kids that this is a very important conversation. It's in relation to sexual assault and some of the statistics and some of the content that I'm about to mention may cause some distress to some. Brittany Higgins' account of sexual assault in Parliament House and the one-year anniversary of the murder of Hannah Clark have brought the Me Too movement back into the spotlight this week. So this morning I thought we'd talk to author David... Oh, hang on. What are we doing here, Scruff? Teachers first. Oh, we're into the teachers first, are we? I've got the 8 o'clock story around wrong way. All right, what we'll do, um, because I've mucked that up, I'll take a quick break and we'll come back. So the New South Wales Teachers Federation Deputy President, Henry Regendra, is going to join us on the program in just a couple of moments. There is a problem here, uh, and it's in relation to schools in regional areas of New South Wales. In fact, I, I read this morning that we've got some teachers in Walgett walking off the job. Now, what's going on in regional schools across New South Wales? What on earth is going on? Well, the Teachers' Federation members at Walgett Community College High School walked off the job due to significant staffing issues. Currently at the school, there are 11 out of 21 positions that remain unfilled. Uh, In fact, let's go to Mr Rajendra now. Uh, Henry, good morning to you, mate. Good morning, Marcus. My apologies for the slight mix-up there. I'm uh, I'm not reading things correctly this morning. So tell me what's happening here uh, at Walgett at the Community College High School. Obviously, the teachers uh, are very concerned, so much so that they've walked. Uh, absolutely. And not only are they concerned, they've been concerned for a very long time. This is something that is uh, should not be new to the Department of Education. In fact, uh, we understand that the department was warned back in September there was a looming staffing crisis in Walgett. And um, unfortunately, regrettably, the school began the school year uh, significantly understaffed. We're now in week four or five of the school term, yeah. and they still have 11 out of the 21 positions unfilled. They are clearly angry. They are clearly upset that the department has failed to work with them to meet the learning needs of those kids in Walgett. Yeah, all right. Well, you're right. It's an example, perhaps of the education department failing to fully staff schools. In this case, a school which is one of the most complex and disadvantaged in the state. The education department have known of the diet teacher shortages at Walgett for some time, but they failed to address the problem, and, and that's unfair, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I, I reflect on the Premier's priorities, and one of those happens to be increasing the number of Aboriginal young people reaching their learning potential. Now, we need to move beyond platitudes. I'm not sure if the department, uh, generally Department of Education, is generally committed to that. Mm. When we see the staffing outcomes and the shortages of Walgett, Walgett that has, um, that, uh, has a significant population of Aboriginal students, I, I'm, I'm committed, we're committed uh, to the First Nations uh, young people of this nation being a priority, but the mechanisms and the processes that the Department of Education have uh, do not prioritise their learning. There needs to be much more done to make sure that we not only have the, 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 uh, the adequate number of teachers, but also 
have the, uh, the teachers with the appropriate qualifications. We've got far too many teachers, not just in Walgett, but across the state that are teaching outside of their subject expertise. Absolutely. And that's not good enough. Yeah, I hear a lot of that. Uh, and you're right, it isn't good enough. And the Auditor General in New South Wales warned the government two years ago, Henry, that there was a critical shortage and yet little is being done to address the shortfall. And as you say, it's all about priorities and it would appear... Um, that the education ministers dropped the ball on this. I mean, there's no priority given to, unfortunately, for whatever reason, to regional schools. And now we're seeing teachers walk out. Absolutely. The, the students, particularly in rural and, and remote areas, and notwithstanding there are issues in metropolitan city, but if we focus on rural and remote, um, the, 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 the commitment and the standards applied to them um, are inferior to their peers in major centres. Uh, there is the major centres daylight and then rural kids when it comes mm. to the commitment of the department uh, meeting their learning needs. I've got to say, we used to have a system which the department has continued to whittle away since 2008. Yeah. Where teachers, now let's, let's be um, up front here, but teachers required in many, many rural towns are not actually from there. We have to, um, uh, we need a system, or we used to have a system that gave the confidence for teachers living, say, in favourable areas to go and work in these particular communities after a minimum period of service, say three or four years, uh, they could then enact a service transfer and return home. That system worked, but that has been whittled away to the point now where the department says, look, um, we can't fill those positions in your school. You'll go and have to do it. And here's the irony. Those teachers, yes, or those principals, yes, they're struggling. They then go to, to Twitter and Facebook to try and find those teachers. The, mm. department, the department spots them on Twitter doing so, and then they want to take disciplinary action against ah, those principals. Ridiculous. No, that's Bizarre. Outrageous. Unfair. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's good to have you on the program. We'll talk to you more about this because it's an issue that does need to be resolved. How do you go with the education minister? I mean, uh, she's missing in action on a number well, of issues. Her, the government and the department, they've failed. They've failed these, these, these communities. We, we, we lose sleep over this. Um, I wonder where they're at um, in this day and age. Mm. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, Sarah Mitchell has a lot to uh, answer to in relation to this. And now we've got a situation where in some regional areas of New South Wales, we're seeing teachers walk off the job, throwing their hands in the air because they're not getting the support from Macquarie Street that they deserve. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Talk soon. Uh, there he is, the New South Wales Teachers Federation Deputy President, Henry Rajendra. Um, and look, I agree. We need to be doing a lot better for schools and communities in regional New South Wales. 13 12 69, the telephone number. Just a, an apology about that slight mix up there. Um, we had a, a, a change in time. So we will talk to author David Lassar about his book, which is brilliant. Women, men, and the whole damn thing. Uh, in it, there are some st sobering statistics about sexual assault and assaults on women in general and suicides, etc. It's a very, very important read, and it's gaining traction to international attention after being released in the US last month. The book has been praised by both female advocates and a number of men's groups for addressing Australia's gender crisis head-on particularly as we navigate the post-Me Too movement. And, of course, as you would know, uh, in the last couple of weeks, it's really been at the fore with Brittany Higgins' account of sexual assault in Parliament House and the one-year anniversary of the murder of Hannah Clark. 
So we'll speak to the author, David Lassar, after our 8 o'clock news. So apologies for that muck up. I got the times wrong. Now, emails, MP in the morning at 2SM, supernetwork.com. This one is from Mark. Mark says, Marcus, the number of lives lost on New South Wales roads is increasing with revenue. 50 lives lost so far this year. All right, give me a call. 21 minutes after 7, Marcus Paul in the morning. 2SM Sydney traffic. Preston 10.5 M7, looking at heavy traffic in all directions inside that M7, heading northbound approaching Benita Road. There's still bumper to bumper traffic, but once you get through there, good run up towards Cecil Hills. Heavy traffic, uh, the M2 through Macquarie Park, that run down towards that Lane Curve Tunnel. Liverpool, Elizabeth Drive, New Park Road, a car motorcycle accident eastbound. Does your bed feel as cramped as peak hour traffic? Well, right now at 40 Winks, you can get any size mattress for the price of a single. Hurry, end Sunday, 40 Winks, serious about sleep. That's the latest traffic on 2SM1269. Want to know what your business is worth? Buying selling a business can be a complex process. That's why it makes sense to consult the experts at Benchmark Business Sales and Valuations. With local business knowledge backed by national coverage, Benchmark will guide you through the sales process with their easy proven formula and help you turn your business asset into cash. Australia's only national award winning business brokerage. Call today for your free evaluation and find out what your business is worth. Benchmarkbusiness.com.au G'day, Doug the Tradie here. The right insurance is the safety gear you need on every job site. With IMAR, you'll get the cover you need, like public liability, tools and personal accident and illness quickly. And for a limited time, save up to 120 bucks when you buy all three online. Save some quick bucks in a few simple steps. Head to imar.com.au and get a quote, get covered, get working. Yeah, the trade is, mate. That's IMAR. The way Australian businesses access business NBN fibre has changed for good. With our fastest ever wholesale symmetrical speeds and a wide choice of providers, we're making business fibre more accessible in more locations than ever to improve high-speed connectivity right across Australia. To find out more, search Business NBN Fibre today. Helping you to manage the pain and inflammation associated with osteo and other mild forms of arthritis is Stiff Sore and Sorry Pain Relief Gel. Always read the label, use only as directed, and if symptoms persist, see your healthcare professional. Look for Stiff Sore and Sorry Pain Relief Gel at pharmacies and health food stores everywhere. To find the location of your nearest Stiff Sore and Sorry stockist, go to loveoilcollection.com.au or phone Ray on 040-66-71-359. My family's been farming this land for generations and hopefully will for many more to come. Things aren't as easy to do on the farm as they once were and we hear of too many injuries, especially to older farmers. If you've been in the game as long as me, there are things you can do to make work easier and safer. The Great Idea Bank is a guide produced by older farmers for older farmers with practical tips that can help whether you think you're old or not. For copies, visit farmsafe.org.au. 2SM has Sydney talking. Oh my goodness, John Laws, we're the survivors. 2SM has Sydney talking. Wake up in the morning. Wake up. Marcus Paul has Sydney talking. 
All the news and the views. Marcus Paul, weekdays from 5am on 2SM. Yeah, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts on the program just after the 7.30 news. He wants to discuss the government's IR reform, the One Nation booting, uh, the <laughs> boot reforms, that is the better overall, uh, better off overall test. Uh, which they claimed had the potential to put workers' paying conditions at risk. So we'll talk about that and also a submission made to the Industrial Relations Inquiry, which has been published, so that's on the way. And Anzac Day, too. I understand the Senator wants to talk about that. Steve Andrew, One Nation member for Morani, has put up a petition to restore Anzac Day services... They've had a win in Queensland to restore Anzac Day, as it ought to be. And, look, I would suggest and I would hope that, you know, by the time Anzac Day rolls around, certainly by the first day of April, we should be able to make a decision, a confirmed decision, that Anzac Day will and should go ahead as per normal this year. That's all on the way. 13 12 69, my telephone number. New sport and weather not too far away at 730 it's Marcus Paul in the morning. Ah, the ABC's look of love. Marcus Paul in the morning. New Zealand has been declared a COVID-19 hotspot by New South Wales. That means travellers from uh, New Zealand will have to quarantine for 14 days when they arrive in the state. Now, Victoria is also enforcing quarantine after reclassifying it as a red zone. Queensland has removed New Zealand's safe travel country designation. It all follows the confirmation of eight cases of the virus in Auckland. Not good. 13 12 69, the telephone number to have you say. MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. Uh, what about that really nasty look given to Peter Dutton yesterday by the Prime Minister? Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton revealed he was informed of the alleged rape of former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins on February 11, one day before media inquiries were made to the office of the Prime Minister. <laughs> Someone's telling porkies. I don't think it's Peter Dutton, to be honest. Email us. Check out our podcasts. And listen live to smsupernetwork.com. And now on Marcus Paul in the Morning, Senator Malcolm Roberts. All right, welcome back to the program. 21 and a half minutes away from 8 o'clock, 13, 12, 69, 2smsupernetwork.com for your emails. Senator Malcolm Roberts joins us each and every Thursday. Malcolm, good morning, mate. Good morning, Marcus. How are you? Well, thank you. Are you uh, where are you in Canberra at the moment? In Canberra, and it's a beautiful day. But uh, everyone down here is saying how cold it is for summer. <laughs> how cold it is for summer? Yeah, it, it's about 15 degrees right now, and uh, the Comcar driver was saying it's, it's bloody cold. It's cold. Well, I guess oh. Comcar drivers would know. <laughs> well, they've lived here most of, their, most of their lives, some of them, mate. Com cars. What what are you getting around in these days? Uh, you're not in the Beamers, are you? Are they still driving Commodores? Com car drivers, mate. You know the one I like. It's the um, the glorified Com uh, Commodore. What do they call it? The Caprice. Oh, that, right. that is fabulous. But um, mostly it's uh, Camry. Okay. And sometimes, yeah, we get we jag the BMW. But you know what? I still <laughs> like the Holden. It's easily the best. <laughs> All right. I'm serious. No, uh, well, absolutely. I, I don't mind Holden either. Of course. I just wish we made them here. Exactly. Mm. All right, let's have a look here. Um, you say the Ice Age is coming to the Northern Hemisphere, or you don't say it is. What, what's this about? Well, the talk of a, a um, solar minimum and the temperatures plummeting uh, below normal. 
Right. And that, that looks to be what's happening. And, and apparently in China they've had crop failures and uh, in Germany they've had the coldest weather in a decade and solar panels blanketed in snow and ice, mm. uh, 30,000 wind turbines idle. Um, and they get a, a significant percentage of their electricity from solar and wind. Of course. They're now building a coal-fired power station. Oh, sorry, they've, they've opened one. Um, Texas, which has got a huge amount of gas, oil, um, it's got brown coal. They can get cheap black coal from mm. Wyoming, trucked down very, very cheaply uh, by rail. And uh, they've got these subsidies for uh, wind, and they've now got uh, a hell of a lot of wind power going on there and they've been blacked out for for days on end some people you know people living in their houses in texas of all places <laughs> with uh, condensation that's frozen on their walls yeah know, just insane so yeah. it's, it's crazy what's going on how can we marcus how can we possibly say that climate change is a problem and therefore the weather is going to be a problem we've got all these extremes and then go crazy and and make our power system system dependent on weather. Just insane. Well, I've heard some discussion in the last 24 hours about nuclear, uh, Malcolm. Nuclear energy, apparently it's it's so much safer. It doesn't need, we don't need to build these new uh, reactors next to oceans anymore. And we've got plenty of uh, land in, in the country to, to get rid of the nuclear waste, etc., which isn't as bad as what it's been in previous decades. I mean, what's your stance on nuclear power as a part of the mix? Yeah, nuclear power, Pauline and I are both open to the discussion of, of that. We need to open that discussion up. Um, the, the cheapest form of power by far is hydroelectricity, where you can do it. And we, we should be tapping into that resource, and One Nation's policy is to do exactly that up north. Um, then the second cheapest is coal, by a long, long way. And then the third cheapest is nuclear. And in the vast distance uh, is uh, solar and wind. Mm. They're actually uh, parasites on nuclear, um, <laughs> coal, and, uh, and, and hydro. But, parasites? You know, in, in South, yes, parasites? Yeah, because they require subsidies. And Warren yeah. Buffett who's the world's most, most uh, successful investor ever, he said that wind, uh, wind solar turbines are useless, but when you subsidise them from the government, they're a wonderful investment. Um, mm. So coming back to your question, South Australia has got um, abundant uh, nuclear sources, uranium, yeah. and, and, and it would be ideal for South Australia. But we need to do it for the right reasons, for, um, for power reliability and for power cheapness. As I said, the cheapest is hydro, the second cheapest is coal. We need to stick with them. That's our competitive advantage. Hell, we, we export more energy in the form of gas and coal than any other nation in the world. Yeah. And we have the highest gas prices domestically, and we can't use our own coal. So we're subsidising the trashing of our jobs, exporting of our jobs to places like China and Asia, who use our coal and, and generate electricity and sell it to their businesses for $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour. We do it for triple that. Not because we're inefficient, but because the government has, has put all this rubbish on it. So we've got to start thinking about putting Australia first. When you put it like that, what is a members, a private member's legislation uh, bill all about? Well, people know that uh, the government is in power in the lower house yes. and the Senate becomes a house of, rev of review. That's right. So most of the legislation comes into the Senate after being passed from the lower house. Occasionally, um, and we've done it ourselves, we've raised bills, as you know, the anti-bail-in bill that, that I, I uh, introduced earlier this year, yeah. uh, sorry, late last year. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in this case, uh, it's, it's a private senator, Senator O'Neill, right. uh, introduced a, a bill um, to 
So it's not a party-sponsored bill. She's in the Labor Party, but it's a private senator's bill. Right. And that's dealt with and voted on. And if, it's, if it succeeds, then it goes down to the lower house where the lower house vote on it. What's and the bill about? This is about franchisees um, getting some power back from powerful franchisors. You know, General Motors left this country. Um, sadly, as you said, we don't manufacture cars anymore. Yeah. But General Motors left, and they just tossed their, their dealer network aside. And, and these dealers have established businesses. They employ uh, hundreds of people, thousands of people across the country. Yeah. Um, and they're very important for local communities, especially in places like Western and Northern New South Wales and right across rural Queensland. And, and they just tossed them aside. So what, what Deb O'Neill's bill did was it, it brought in place hefty fines, up to $10 million for mm. franchisors that neglect their, or use their power capriciously. And it also brought in compulsory arbitration if they can't settle them. And so we won't have something like Holden dealers uh, being abused as they were. All right. Sounds okay to me. Craig Kelly, uh, what do you make of it? You're calling it an honourable resignation. Uh, he wants to be free to do some work. Uh, he bases all of his comments on data and facts. You, you think that this is a solid bloke? Very, mate. I've had lots of interactions with Craig on several issues. He is passionate about our country. If he says something, it's correct. That's my experience with him 100% uh, over, over a few years now. He's, uh, you know, he's a nice bloke, but that's, that's not the key to it. The key is that he's a strong man. He's got courage and integrity, and he'll continue pushing an issue so long as he's got the facts and the data to, to back it up. He's, he's quite often worked with me on various issues around the um, uh, around Parliament. And that's just like Deb O'Neill. Deb O'Neill, she's from the Labor Party. Yeah. Craig was from the Liberal. We'll work mm. with anyone so long as they're decent people, honest, and they're working for, for the country. And, and sounds like you, remember. Sounds like you're courting him uh, for One Nation. Is that something that could happen? <laughs> I know he's, but you better be careful. You might need to get a, in a line because uh, Barnaby Joyce is also circling the, the Kelly wagon. That's what, that's what I said when the media asked me about Craig's resignation from the Liberal Party. I just said, you know, I, I think Barnaby Joyce will be very, very happy with this because they'll be courting him so that he can knock off um, Michael McCormack as leader uh, because he's not showing much spine in, in the Nationals. They've just become sycophants for the Liberal Party. But like I said, we'll work with anyone. And All right, uh, All right well, but you didn't answer my question. Are you courting um, Craig Kelly for One Nation? No, I'm not. We we um, have many things in common. We have right. many of the same beliefs, but we are not courting him. We, um, you know, we had no negotiations okay. from me or Pauline with uh, Craig. All right, mate. Anzac Day. Uh, there's been a bit of a win up there in Queensland. Steve Andrew, One Nation member for Morani, put up a petition to restore Anzac Day services. Yes, and and he, we've had a win. All right, we've got the Anzac Day services restored, and and they'll be as they should be. Um, so it's very, very important. So uh, we missed last year for the only time ever, I believe, wasn't it, Marcus? Pretty much. I mean, look, it was still commemorated. And uh, I know how important it is for the marches and I know how important it is to get out to, you know, your local community hub uh, to commemorate Anzac Day. But I thought last year was actually still, even though it wasn't because of COVID-19, I thought it was still very special. It was nice seeing all the photographs of people who were... I, I, yeah, I agree with you, mate. It's... It, yeah. um, you know, uh, Anzac Day, when, when I was a, a kid, was not that big. It was literally for veterans. Um, mm. But these days, uh, my kids were very keen to attend. Uh, we, it, it is a special day. It's, it's, it's becoming more and more Australia's day. So it, it really mm. is quite remarkable what Anzac Day has become. It's lovely.
Absolutely. Just finally, um, you've booted the boot reforms, the better overall off test. Tell me about this. Yes, um, the boot test, the better off overall test, is a test where any new enterprise agreement that comes before the Fair Work Commission must be compared with the award and make sure that that uh, it is either better or equal to the award. Yeah. And um, uh, the government, want, it's part of its new industrial relations package legislation, wanted to... Um, wanted to modify the boot and we said no way and uh, the government has listened to our argument and they've said okay they've taken the boot out of the um, the boot modifications and weakening mm -hmm. out of the proposed legislation yeah we're still concerned very much with the approach on casuals um it's 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 not the bill as it stands now is not worthy of being passed by yeah. us but um yeah we are willing to work with the government because there are areas of the bill that are decent and that and small businesses in particular and employees need. Workers need these. So we're going to work with the government, as we do with um, with the Labor Party and anyone in Parliament, to come up with something that, that actually works. All right. Good to have you on the program as always, Malcolm. Have a good week and we'll catch up again next Thursday. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day, Marcus. All right. You too. There he is, One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts. Marcus Paul in the morning. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Want more news and genuine talk on the radio? Then stick with us. Yeah, give us a call. The open line is there for you, 13 12 69. If you would like to have your say, 13 12 69. Emails, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. A very important conversation on the air after 8 o'clock. So in around about 15 minutes' time, I'm going to catch up with author David Lassar. He wrote Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing, which explores patriarchy and misogyny critically from the male perspective. And, of course, we should be talking about it given, well, the horrific headlines of alleged sexual abuse against women in our country and in some of the most sacred places within our country, including our, well, our beacon of democracy, Parliament House in Canberra. That's on the way. 13, 12, 69. Hey, Belinda Carlisle is on her way to Australia. Might try and catch up with Belinda. I spoke to her the last time she was out here. I love Belinda Carlisle. She's celebrating 35 years of hits. Here's one of her earlier ones. Mad About You, Belinda Carlisle. Yeah, Belinda Carlisle, Mad About You. She's on her way back to Australia for another tour. Celebrating 35 years of hits, I'm told. She's great fun uh, catching alive as well. There's no airs and graces she gets out there, usually barefoot, and that voice is still as sweet as it ever was. Uh, we'll try and catch up with Belinda, um, give her a little plug on her upcoming tour. 13 12 69, the telephone number, Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, now, I've got a note here uh, in relation to a conversation we're going to have after 8 o'clock, but... This is from an anonymous... I mean, I know who the emailer is, but she wants to remain anonymous. Marcus, I wonder how rife sexual assault is in the hospitality industry. My daughter was sexually assaulted numerous times by a security guard whilst working the night shift at a hotel. This was reported to a manager who took her off the night shift for one week. Uh, she was back on with the same man the next week uh, on the night... OK, really? So... So if the matter was reported to the owner, who owned a chain of hotels in Sydney, I mean, apparently he expressed his disgust and said that the security guard would be sacked, which he was, but the next week your daughter was sacked and a security guard, and the same security guard seen working at a hotel two weeks later, 
Uh, you call it a low act by this well-respected owner in the community, but not by us, but uh, anonymous, and I know your name, of course, I won't mention just out of respect, but I do have to ask the question, why didn't your daughter go to the police? I'm just a bit concerned by that. I mean, if one sexual assault alleged is bad enough, but if it's happened on numerous occasions, well then... I would have thought this young lady, your daughter, might have gone to the police, even, you know, particularly after she was sacked. And, you know, as you say, you claim the security guard was seen working at a hotel two weeks later, owned by this same operator. Well, then, what about all the other women that may come in contact with him? Why wouldn't you report it to the police is my question, I guess. Now, you can get a brand new custom design website at a special low price from List Designs. From small and medium-sized businesses to entrepreneurs, startups and long-term family businesses, List Designs are the website experts. They're a sponsor of ours here at Marcus Paul in the Morning, so please support those who support us. Marcus Paul in the Morning. The University of Sydney has been accused of reaching new levels of wokeness by changing its logo to an 11-colour progress flag to coincide with the start of Mardi Gras. The move has led to calls for the university to focus on its core functions with accusations the initiative was actually promoting division. What a load of rot. Unscripted, genuine, sometimes silly. Back in the day, I was a, you know, a coming at you kind of radio announcer. Alrighty, let's get into it. Round number one of 1FM Scores. Alrighty, the first question is, my name is... I beg your pardon, we'll start it again. My God, what? Hello, I'm Marcus Paul on the radio playing <laughs> oh, the hits. Yes, uh, with that big uh, fake voice going on there. <laughs> That's gold, absolute gold. What's your name? Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Uh, five and a half minutes after 8, 13, 12, 69. Our open line number and emails. We've got more of them coming through uh, if you want to send me one. MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. Frank says, G'day, Marcus. Last week, the CSIRO stated the nu- that nuclear is the dearest way to produce electricity. Well, Frank... <laughs> Uh, Malcolm Roberts and the CSIRO do not exchange Christmas cards uh, and they will argue over the tiniest bit of data. Uh, But yes, thank you for that. Uh, Now, the anonymous emailer has responded to my comments. G'day, Marcus. Thanks for reading the email. My daughter was uh, 22 and totally devastated by uh, the action when she'd been sexually assaulted. Uh, a couple of times working in the hospitality industry, she was also devastated by the actions of the owner. I urged her to go to the police, but she said she didn't want to go to court against such a powerful man and just wanted to forget about it. She was so fragile, and I didn't want to do more harm to her by saying, you need to go to the police. Two years on, she's feeling stronger, and after hearing about Brittany Higgins, she has decided to report the sexual assaults to police. Well, look, thank you for that email, and 
I wish you and your daughter every strength in pursuing some justice. 2SM Sydney Traffic. Very heavy seaforth over the Spit Bridge down towards that Mossman area, the M2 through Macquarie Park down towards that Lane Cove Tunnel. Slow congested traffic. French's Forest, Warringah Road, Wankers Parkway, that run up towards Forest Way. That's very heavy traffic at the moment. Liverpool, you're in high demand of the humour approaching Elizabeth Drive, northbound direction there. Head trackside for Sydney's first Group 1 race of the year, Tab Chipping Norton Stakes Day, this Saturday at Royal Randwick. Book now at theracers.com.au. That's the latest traffic on 2SM 1269. Need insurance for your boat or jet ski this summer? Get a quote from Club Marine, Australia's leading provider of boat insurance. Call or search Club Marine to find out more. Ask for a PDS to see if this insurance is right for you. Finance Easy can help you through these uncertain financial times. Whether you need to get on top of bills, business loans, car loans, equipment finance, Finance Easy can take the stress out of finding finance with Australia's best rates. We are here to support the community. Chat to us online or over the phone and let us take care of everything. Visit financeeasy.com.au or call 1300 003 003. Finance Easy. That's E-Z-I. We make getting what you want easy. Oz Clean's pre-wash power 500ml bottle is on special now at Woolworths. Oz Clean pre-wash power, it's an amazing stain remover. Oz Clean pre-wash power gets rid of stubborn blood, dirt and food stains. Get it while on special now at Woolworths. Oz Clean products actually work. They're eco-friendly and 100% Aussie made and owned. Bet Deluxe, the new home for online punting. Throughout the summer, sign in to check out our racing, sport and same-game multi-specials every day. Visit betdeluxe.com.au. Serious betting for serious punters. Gamble responsibly. If gambling becomes an issue for you, call 1-800-858-858. Sky Racing Carnival of Miracles presents Schweppes Ladies Night, Club Menangle Trackside, this Saturday. The night includes fashions on the field with $4,000 in prize money for the best-dressed male and female with runners-up prizes for grabs. It's free to enter, but secure a hospitality package to treat your lady to a night at the trots. For more information, visit clubmanangle.com.au. Enjoy a winning night out with Club Menangle. The way Australian businesses access business NBN fibre has changed for good with our fastest ever wholesale symmetrical speeds and a wide choice of providers we're making business fibre more accessible in more locations than ever to improve high speed connectivity right across Australia to find out more search business NBN fibre today 2SM Super Network News News All right, it's 11 minutes after right now. Um, this following conversation, uh, again, kids in the car warning and just a, uh, just a reminder that some of the comments that we'll make and some of the content here may cause some people some distress. So just please keep that in mind. Brittany Higgins' account of sexual assault in Parliament House and the one-year anniversary of the murder of Hannah Clark have brought the Me Too movement back to the spotlight this week. So this morning we thought we'd catch up with David Lassar, who's written, or Laser, I beg your pardon, who's written a, a brilliant, brilliant book, Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing. It explores the patriarchy and misogyny critically from the male perspective. 
It's gained international attention and was released in the United States last month. The book has been praised by both female advocates and a number of men's groups for addressing Australia's gender crisis head-on, particularly as we navigate the post-Me Too movement. Uh, Now, David's been a journalist for more than 40 years, and in this book he talks about how both violence against women and male suicide are national emergencies. The difficult conversations men need to be having and the ways that men might play a more productive role in addressing male aggression, abusive power and deep-rooted inequalities. As David says, what is it that men need to learn and then teach their boys so that they don't turn into violent, abusive or predatory men? What happened to those men for them to turn out that way? And I'm very happy to say that David joins us on the program. Thank you for your time, mate. Thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, it's a wonderful read. It really is. Some of the key stats uh, about you know attacks on women by men in our society is staggering. One in three Australian women has experienced physical violence since the age of 15. Nearly 20% of women have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. I mean, these stats are awful. Oh, yeah, and it could go on. You know, there's about 2.2 million women alive today who've at some point in their lives been living in fear from their former partners or their current partners who've lived so-called underground. Uh, There's hundreds of women who who have reported being strangled by their partners or their former partners in Queensland alone. I mean, there's over one woman every week killed by a partner or former partner in this country every week. So this is this is part of a global pandemic. This is, in my view, and in the view of many people who look at this closely, this is the greatest form of violence on the planet today. Um, according to the United Nations, there's over a billion women and girls who have suffered some kind of physical or sexual violence. So... When we look at the Brittany Higgins story, and of course that's, that, that was violent, uh, that, what was alleged was obviously criminal and violent, it is part of a, a pattern. It's part of a, a, a global pandemic. And in this country, uh, we have a really, really big problem. And that's why the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, launched that uh, inquiry two years ago and came out with Uh, 30-odd recommendations, if not more, um, last year, 12 months ago, uh, because sexual harassment, just to to focus on that for a minute, um, most people who experience it don't report it. I fear the impact. Well, I just, uh, yeah, I just, sorry to interrupt you there, David. I I just had a uh, an email from a listener that I shared just before the news, and then a a follow up where a a woman has written to the program, and I do get a few of these. Uh, A woman's written to the program saying that her daughter, at the tender age of her early twenties, was allegedly sexually assaulted by a security guard in the hospitality workplace, not once, but on numerous occasions. She went to a boss. The boss basically said the bloke will be sacked and then moved her to a new role. Uh, But then he was back at work two weeks later and she herself was sacked. Uh, She didn't go to the police at the time. She is now, but at the time she didn't report it because of that power imbalance. She's afraid to. 
That's right, Marcus. Look, you know, these stories are legion. Uh, when I was researching and writing this book, um, you know, I made it my business to find out, and I heard shocking things, and I mm. found out things from from my own daughters that I I didn't know that that things that have been normalised. And if you start talking, even my mother, you know, my mother, God bless her, she's ninety two years of age. Yeah. When I started doing this book, she told me about things that we just had. You know, thought, well, that's what happens to women. You know, this is what happens to our sisters and our mothers and our daughters and our colleagues and, and our friends and our girlfriends and our partners, our wives, that that w- women are uh, sexually harassed, they are coerced, they are violated, they are stalked, they are mocked, they are ridiculed, they are shamed. And this is part of a, a, a virus, and and it's one of the. And I wrote this book so that men like you and I could have this conversation. Good, because the conversation needs to be had, and more often, because I don't understand why it's acceptable, well, not acceptable, but why in some quarters, you know, this behaviour is almost normalised. It shouldn't be, you know, the, the old adage of you know. Uh, locker room humour and all the rest of it uh, has unfortunately seeped into mainstream society, and it you know it culminates and, and festers in a number of areas. and And good God, David, now we're learning that it's even rife in places like our own parliament, and that's not good. Well, you know, Marcus, it's it's here, there, and everywhere. It's in the White House, or it was in the White House. Yes, the the U.S. Supreme Court, Congress. The, the House of Commons in Britain, the French National Assembly, the Vatican, Hollywood, media and entertainment, big business, small business, hip-hop, opera, the arts, science, sport, publishing, university campuses, charities, you name it, this is everywhere. Yeah. And, and this is, the, it, is a, it is something that is common to cultures across the world that a man is superior to a woman that a man can do what he wants to a woman, that a man's honour will be attacked if a woman stands up to him or challenges him or, God forbid, chooses to leave him. And that a woman is, is there for the taking because that's what, at some point in the culture, in our training, in our education, that's what boys are taught because, you know, we know boys start off as sweet, delicious, tender Absolutely. Children. Of course. Right? And so, so something happens to some boys. We're obviously not talking about all boys, and we're not talking about all men. No, of course uh, not. Let me be clear. But it's happening enough to, to demand of men like you and I and hopefully your listeners yes. to, want to, un- to want to understand what it is that has turned these once sweet, delicious, tender children into predators. Well, what is it? What does the stats say? Uh, I mean, I look, I, uh, without going into too much details, I mean, we know, unfortunately, that a number of women are murdered each and every week in our country at the hands of their partners. Domestic violence is rife. Uh, mostly it's male perpetrators against females. Uh, sexual assaults uh, is up and the stats are awful. Why is this happening. I mean, that's the key point here. Why is there such resistance, if you like, to change? And and why, for instance, is the hashtag MeToo movement ridiculed 
by some. It shouldn't be. Well, no. I mean, I responded to the. I mean, I was just, just. Uh, I thought I was awake. You know, I thought I was a reasonably, you know, woke guy, pro- progressive guy. I mean, I'd, I'd been married for many years to yep. a strong, strong feminist, and I'd worked for, you know, brilliant feminist editors. I, um, you know, I, I, a lot of my female friends were feminists. I thought I knew this territory, and then I started. And then suddenly, millions of women through the Me Too movement, as you say, started roaring, literally roaring. This. You were groped when you were a kid, so was I. You, you were raped, so was I. You were molested, me too. And millions of women started, you know, pouring out their distress online. And I, I, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a journalist, I wanted to understand why this was happening. And, and of course, it's been happening for centuries. And, you know, all the advances of of women's liberation over the past half century, you know, they've been extraordinary in many countries. Yeah. Um, But alongside that is this training that boys receive that that if they are not... I mean, one of the things is work. Mm. You know, one of the main definers of a man's identity is his work, is his role as a provider, yes, um, and that's across the board. Mm. Now, if that's threatened, and it has been threatened all over the world, with you know, with technological change, with the digital age, with the service industry, a lot of manual jobs have been lost. So mm. men, and they, and a lot of the graduates coming through and taking the jobs are women. So on that, just on that front alone, yeah, men men feel attacked. They feel assailed. They feel under threat. And where can they assert their power? Well, the last place sometimes is at home. Yes. The only place sometimes is at home. No, so that's, that's just one explanation. But I think the other explanation, and there's many, and I don't want to sort of try and simplify it, and I know that you don't seek simple answers to these things because they're not simple. No. But another, another thing is that I think boys are taught that the worst thing growing up that you could ever be is a girl. Don't be a Nancy boy. Don't 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 be weak. Don't show your vulnerability. Suck it mm-hmm. up. Be strong. You, yeah. Be a man. Yeah. So you learn very early on that all of those emotions that are available to every child growing up, the full range of emotions, you learn very early on that certain emotions for a boy are not advisable. And then they're suppressed. And then they're suppressed. And so what happens when you grow up and you're in a relationship and things get complicated, as they do for everybody? Where do you go with those emotions? Well, you either withdraw into sullen, brooding, menacing silence. Yep. You, attack, you, you attack yourself, and we should, get, we should mention that as well. Of course. That there are uh, you know, seven or eight men a week topping themselves. Because, because life has become too much for them. Or they attack those who they profess to love, their women, their, their, the women in their lives uh, and or their children. They lash out. And they lash out because they don't have the emotional repertoire. They don't know who to talk to. Yeah. They don't have a toolkit to reach into uh, to be able to say, hey, I'm in trouble. I don't understand what's going on. I need to talk. And, and this is where I think men and their mates 
being able to talk to each other is one of the healthiest things in the world. Not not about sport, mm. but that too, of course, and politics, that too, but about their lives, about their emotions, about what's going on for them. Yeah. And so, you know, we should have, I think, that, you know, the sex, Kate Jenkins' sex discrimination report that came out, um, you know, she she's talked about having a kind of a whole national agenda, almost like an ombudsman mm. for sexual harassment. But we need one too uh, for male suicide because it's going through the roof. That's also a pandemic. Why won't politicians listen when, you know, I guess people like me and others call for a minister for men? We need a minister for men to deal with these issues. As you say, it's a, it's a pandemic. It's rife. It's, you know, it's through, it's corrupted our society like a, 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 a noxious cancer. That's why a minister for men is paramount, so that we can stop the male suicides, so that we can stop the domestic violence, we can stop men suppressing their emotions and lashing out against those they profess to love, David. Yeah, I, I don't know. You have to ask them oh. why they don't res- respond to that recommendation. You know, we need... Um, I mean, I think even the term a minister for men is going to, unless you explain it and you've just done that, Mm. people will see those words and think, look, here it is again, men talking about men, for men, by men, and it's the the women who are in trouble. Nobody says the minister for men has to be a a bloke. It can be a woman. That's right. But, I mean, it's not a a zero-sum game, is it? You know, women are... uh, Everything we've talked about this morning, you know, the the level of harassment, abuse, murder, rape, you know... You don't have to be deeply concerned about that and not be concerned about the number of men who are taking their own lives. Well, they well, are sir. both they are both shocking emergencies in this country. Mm. And and I think that one of the things I would I would uh, want to assert emphatically is that men when when some women say, Look, you know, this is not. This is a, this is a women's issue. No, this is a men a, a man's issue. Yep. Because men are perpetrating this violence in the in the majority yeah. against others and against themselves. Exactly. And so we have to do something about the, this violence. All right. We men have to start talking about it. Well, we've started a conversation, David, and it's great to have you on the program. Uh, This book uh, is the book a man needed to write. It should be on the school curriculum for girls and boys alike. If you're a mum of a boy, I think you need to read this book. If you're the mum of a girl, you should read this book. If you're a woman, if you're a bloke, if you're anybody. You should read this book. Please do. I would commend it to anybody. Um, it's it's a very, very important read. Women, men, and the whole damn thing. David Lassar, thank you very much, mate. I appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you very much for having me. All right, new sport and weather coming up next at 8.30. Marcus Paul in the morning. Less ads means more of your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, Diane Coveney-Garland from our newsroom. In just a couple of moments, she's the Queen Bee after all. Cole, are you there, mate? Yeah, g'day, Marcus. How are you going? Good. Thanks for holding on, Cole. What do you want to say? Uh, it was worth holding on, mate. It's a very important discussion. Uh, even to keep our ladies, our girls safe, 
Uh, I was born in the 60s, so I was told never hit a girl, mm. uh, which includes a woman. And, and it's it's very important that we get that message out. And while the conversation has been started, Mark, something a lot of people don't realise yeah. is that whilst the outcomes are terrible and, and sometimes fatal when in domestic violence when a man attacks a woman, women attack men just as much. And, and I, I, I would say that a lot of men don't report it. Um, but what you've got to, I've spoken with policemen about this and the outcomes are just so much worse when a man attacks a woman because they're stronger. Absolutely. So don't yeah. think that it's just men that are doing this. It's a human trait. Well, no, domestic violence has absolutely no gender, but still, uh, I mean, in, in my conversation with David Laser today, I mean, I'd commend to everybody, blokes in particular, read that book. Uh, you may well... Uh, be shocked by the the few home truths that he tells. All right, mate. Yeah, well, I, I spoke to a policeman, and yeah. I didn't wait on half an hour to, to talk about that. I'm just following up on your conversation because it's an important conversation. Yes. But, um, but, mate, please don't blame the men. Men and women attack each other. You cannot just... Uh, everybody's making men out where bad. It's just that the outcomes are worse, and most men don't report when women attack them. So please, mate. Don't demonise men. We're all human beings stuck in difficult well, I think it's about demonising men, Cole. I think it's about I, understanding I it's not, why but, we've got to this point where uh, women, uh, unfortunately, are still seen as inferior to men. And, uh, you know, the Me Too movement, I think, and I know a lot of people probably will disagree, but the Me Too movement has been... Well, wonderful in in that it has outed some of this awful predatory behaviour of men, and and unfortunately, um, the stats overwhelmingly say that attacks on women are more prevalent by men. And anyway, let's move on. You wanted to talk about Queensland yeah, as well. Just quick, check those stats, Marcus, because I respect you, brother, and I think you're, you. you're a good man. Uh, now, I just wanted to say, mate, um, about the money that. Uh, the Queensland government doesn't want to pay back for the quarantine. Yeah, 30-odd million, yep. I was outraged when they said Queensland hospitals for Queensland um, people, and I've, I've been di- I was dying to ring up and say this, <laughs> New South Wales GST for New South Wales people. Keep your hospitals, we'll build one right on the tweed, and we won't give you the GST anymore. This is outrageous, the, the politicisation, if that's a word. Yes, it is. The state bloody leaders... I say get rid of state leaders, mate. We are over-governed. We are so over-governed. Well, I've been saying that for a long policy. time. Yeah. That's why I respect you, mate. All right. Uh, uh, like, nice to talk to you, mate, and get rid of political donations while I'm having a wink. See you, buddy. Sounds good. Uh, great call. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you, mate. David, hello, buddy. The first cat said, how did you do in the milk drinking contest? The first cat said, how did you do in the milk drinking contest, David? And the second cat said, I won by two laps. Now on Marcus Paul in the morning. (laughs) The Queen Bee of the Newsroom, Diane Coveney-Garland. But you're not supposed to... Um, give cats full cream milk, are you, No, Dicey? you're not supposed to. I don't think so. No, you can buy special special milk for the kitty special cats. Special milk for kitty cats. Yes. Look, I am uh, I was a bit naughty last night. We were having dinner and I was over at, uh, at the beautiful fiancé's place. Uh, she has cats. They have quite a few cats, which is fine. I love cats. And anyway, I, we had chicken and oh. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I mean, this this uh, baby is the name of one of the cats. Halo is the name of the other, and Halo was just looking at me with those eyes. 
Do you know our cat <sighs> will come out if you buy ever buy you know the barbecue chooks you can buy and bring home because yeah, you that's um, what we had yeah. yeah exactly when you buy those our cat can sniff them out from a block away I swear she's yeah. waiting in the driveway when you get home with them wow. waiting to yeah. Look, a little bit is okay. Oh, of course, you can't. A little bit a of, it, deal, um, of it, but obviously, it's it shouldn't replace. You know what? Uh, what you know the manufacturers make with all the nutrients and ingredients that. Mm, exactly. Do you like cats? I love cats. Yeah, I'm a yeah, cat, cat person. person. I mean, I like all animals. I like I like dogs as well. But yeah, of course. I, we have a cat at home. Is it an outdoor or indoor cat? Uh, she's a bit of both. She's okay. indoors and outdoors. She and stay indoors at night. We try to keep her indoors mm. at night. Every now and then she will yeah. try and walk out the door as I'm – and she's a bit sneaky. She's got a collar with a bell on it. Oh, good, but she'll that's sneak important. up behind me mm. as I open the door to walk out the door and then she's out the door before I've even realised she's there. Cheeky. And that, that's when I'm leaving for work at about 3 o'clock in the morning. So mm. she's inside up until that point she's most worked nights. It out. But, she's um, worked you out. What's but, her yeah, name? Kitty. Very, we, we got her from a neighbour. It's a funny story. We, ha- we got her mm, from a neighbour and the neighbour had called her Serafina. And, of course, my kids were only little at the time. Mm. And Serafina, look, a beautiful name, yeah. but it was just a bit too much for the cat. So we I just started so. calling her Kitty and that stuck. But no, she's, she's a, a good little kitty. Isn't that gorgeous, eh? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's yep. a really nice way uh, to kill a few moments talking about kitty cats. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Why not, hey? Got to love a good Serafina. That's Serafina. A... It's a beautiful name. I think it's from one of the kids' uh, yeah. movies or something like that. But it was just a bit complex for the kids to remember. Yeah, I think uh, so. you, you know, when they're little to call it. So Kitty. 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 I know. It's a bit bit plain, but she answers no, no, to the well, name. Hey, yeah. she but you know, care. she doesn't as long meow. As you feed her. She just goes like that. So she she, she doesn't very, have a meow. Well, she very rarely meows. Oh, okay. Um, but she does a little. So you can pat her mm. you or walk <laughs> into the room and she'll go like this. Oh. Uh, well, I mean, they are great companions, cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really are. And I mean, like all uh, domestic animals, but obviously cats for a lot of people uh, fill a hole in their lives. And, mm. and some people, uh, you know, for some people, their animals are all they have and they're very important. All right, Di, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Talk soon. Uh, we'll catch Diane. Company Garland reading the news, of course. Uh, John Laws is back today, so you'll hear Dizzy on the news, 9 o'clock this morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, Donna, are you there? Yes. Hi, Donna. How are you? Good, thank you. Excellent. Now, what I'm proposing, Marcus, is to have lessons in the school starting primary school for boys yeah. and possibly girls too, mm. to teach boys respect for women and girls. I haven't got a problem with that. No. I mean, it's obvious to me. Mm. You know, it could have, it was probably taught, as that man said, if you were growing up in the 60s or whatever, that was taught by your parents. Mm. But there's a lot of parents around that d- either don't do that or their culture forbids them for doing it. Well, the other issue, of course, unfortunately, is in this digital age, the age of basically just logging on to any device, whether yes, it be a phone right. or whatever, the, it's that's the right. accessibility to pornography. Yes. And the pornography oh is, you dreadful. know, it's dreadful. Some of it yeah. is very graphically violent. And while we have young young boys in particular at the well, age of think about that. 12 yeah. and 13... Uh. You know, experiencing this exploitation of women on these graphic pornography sites. Well, I mean, that that's a big part of the problem. Well, that should be banned. That's yeah. it. Well, and you think so? 
And there are a lot of, you know, it seems to me very hypocritical to, because of the Prime Minister making this young girl Australian of the Year, 15-year-old who was abused by a male teacher, 58-year-old for repeatedly, obviously. Yes. So I watched the awards not on TV, mm. and you could see, obviously, the emotion coming out of the poor girl. Yep. Yep. You know, I almost felt sorry for her by the end of the speech. Well, look, one good thing that's come out from, um, you know, uh, Grace, Grace Tame being named mm. the Australian of the Year, mm. a sexual assault survivor, is the fact mm. that, well, it's, look, um, and Brittany Higgins would not have that's come a, forward. That's right. Had it have not so been So I can't for understand the Prime mm. Minister saying he never heard about Brittany Higgins till a certain date when he's made this girl Australian of the Year. Well, you know, that's the. <laughs> subject he's put to the fore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I think this Prime Minister is very good at spin, marketing and, and BS, to be perfectly honest. Donna, thank you for the call. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Now on Marcus Paul in the morning. I have always believed in miracles. The latest from the capital Canberra. with Christina Rosengrand. Morning, Christina. How are you? Well, thank you, Marcus. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Nine to nine now, Brittany Higgins has made her formal complaint to the Australian Federal Police regarding her rape allegation. Look, I brought uh, a bit of breaking news uh, to my listeners this morning. Um, After making that report, Brittany and her partner, David, have now relocated to Brisbane. Uh, As we know, he quits late last week, citing... Well, that his job was now untenable, um, given that they've both been under a lot of pressure, Christina. Yes, that's correct. So Brittany Higgins made this formal statement yesterday. That means this is now an active police investigation. So neither the AFP nor ACD policing will be making any additional comments. Uh, Now, in relation to this, there continues to be a lot of serious questions hanging over the Prime Minister about when he was informed of this alleged assault. We've now heard that Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton was told about this case at least 24 hours before media inquiries were made to Prime Minister Scott Morrison's office. So Mr Dutton says he was told by the AFP, and that's because police guidelines state that the Home Affairs Minister has to be informed of politically sensitive matters. Mm. Now, that could mean Mr Dutton was told in 2019 when Ms Higgins first spoke to police, so two years ago, but the Minister still maintains it was this month. But it still raises questions over why he didn't tell the Prime Minister because Mr Morrison says he didn't know of the allegation until the day the story broke on Monday last week, which is several days after Mr Dutton says he became aware of the case. So these questions are really persistent. All right, Labor, as we know, has now supported a Greens motion to bring John, uh, to bring job seeker above the poverty line. As we know, uh, $43 a day is well below it. That's true. So in the Senate yesterday, Labor and Independent Jackie Lambie voted in favour of a Greens motion to increase job seeker support to above the poverty line. That motion passed 31 votes to 30. So there isn't a concrete figure for this. That's not yet been decided. But above the poverty line is generally considered to be anywhere between $816 and $1,100 a fortnight. Now, of course, this comes, as we've been talking about, and you just mentioned that the Morrison government committed to raising the base rate of job seeker, but by only $25 a week, yeah. and as you said, roughly $3.60 a day. And that's been criticised continuously by welfare groups and business groups and economists and the opposition as being wholly inadequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government has said, though, it won't be ex- accepting any amendments to its job seeker legislation and it won't accept a higher rate. So as far as this 
Greens motion goes, it probably won't have legislative impact, but it certainly shows the opposition to this proposed rate. All right, and finally, the Senate COVID-19 committee has accused the Morrison government of withholding information. Yes, so the committee has released its second interim report. It was tabled last night. And in this report, it outlines multiple instances where information sought by the committee has been withheld by the government on public interest immunity. And the committee sees this as willfully obstructing access to information crucial to its inquiries. Uh, Some of the examples of information being withheld include material relating to the government's legal advice about the COVID safe app and uh, health data modelling about the coronavirus infections and also the dates of particular decisions, including ones relating to ensuring the aged care sector was protected from COVID-19. Now, the committee argues that withholding this information is basically compromising its ability to scrutinise the government. And Liberals on this committee haven't dissented from these findings. So uh, the chair of this committee, Katie Gallagher, Labor Senator Katie Gallagher, she's also particularly concerned about what kind of impact this has on the power and purpose of the Senate. And if they don't take a stand on this, then she says it could erode the Senate's power in the future. All right. Great to hear you, Christina. We'll hear more across the day uh, uh, with your reports from Canberra. Thank you. Thank you. Christina in the capital, Marcus Paul in the morning, where it's now nine, uh, I beg your pardon, five minutes away from nine o'clock. Okay, uh, the laws program in just a moment, because they specialise in strata complex unit and commercial building repairs or upgrades, network construction services are the remedial building specialists that you can trust. Whether it's structural repairs, facade and cladding replacement, waterproofing, upgrades to electrical and fire services, improving accessibility, concrete cancer repairs, well, Network Construction Services bring together over 70 years of combined industry experience. So if you need repairs, refurbishments or maintenance to your strata complex unit or your commercial building and you need it completed on time within budget and to the very highest standards of quality, Network Construction Services are the leaders in remedial building work. You can find out more at networkconstructionservices.com.au or give Steve a call, 98 08 That's 98 08 for Network Construction Services. Come up the dial and give us a trial. Marcus Paul in the morning. You make me smile. That's it for us today on this Thursday, February 25. Thank you for your company. Thank you for your phone calls on the open line, your emails and your SMSs. Plenty available up on our social pages. Just go to 2smsupernetwork.com. You'll find podcasts uh, and also a lot of news content. Just click on 2smsupernetwork.com and go to our show page from there. Lawsy is back. The King of Talk, John Laws, and the morning show returns after the news. You can call John now, 1300 564 652. Have a great, safe day. Bye now. Just like that, you steal away the rain, and just like that.